Our sermon text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Some of you may be disappointed to hear a sermon from Ecclesiastes this morning. To use a metaphor, you prefer your sermon coffee with some clearly Christ-centered creamer to sweeten things up a bit. Others of you may be excited for a sermon on Ecclesiastes. You are more of the existential types who like their sermon coffee piping hot and vanity of vanities black. Either way... It is safe to say that Ecclesiastes is, in fact, a strange book of the Bible, one that is prone to often confuse its readers while creating existential dread in them. But it is still a book of the Bible. That is, Ecclesiastes is in the Bible because it is the inspired word of God. Moreover, just as the rest of the Old Testament is fulfilled in and testifies to Jesus Christ, so does the book of Ecclesiastes. So it is good to read and wrestle with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, who is the narrator of the majority of this book. And from our particular text this morning, we will be reminded of how ignorant we really are of the way things are and the way things will be. And yet, although we do not know as much as we may think, wisdom still impels us to work hard and work joyfully in the labor God has called us to do in this life, no matter how long this life may or may not be. Again, although we do not know as much as we may think, wisdom still impels us to work hard and work joyfully in the labor God has called us to do in this life no matter how long this life may or may not be. But before really getting into our passage, we must orient ourselves to the entire 
book of Ecclesiastes and its kind of wisdom. There are multiple approaches to how to understand Ecclesiastes and its message. The extremes being to discount most of the book as examples of what not to believe or to treat the book as an edgier and more emo version of Proverbs. In contrast to such extremes, however, Ecclesiastes does contain valuable and true teachings about life, but delivers this truth in a different way than other wisdom literature like Job or Proverbs. In the, wood, in the words of one commentator, if Proverbs is like math, mostly dealing with equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone, end quote. Or another way to say it is that Proverbs gives us the general rules of life, while Ecclesiastes gives us the jarring and all-too-real exceptions to those proverbial rules. And these two approaches to wisdom, as seen in Wisdom and Ecclesiastes, are not without purpose either. We are given the norms of Proverbs and the exceptions of Ecclesiastes so that we can be prepared for those confounding and terrible moments of our lives wherein the Bible character we relate to most is the suffering and blessed Job. Those moments in which we encounter an exception to the rule for the first time and we have received the short end of the stick and we are left in dust and ashes of freshly plumbed depths of suffering. So Ecclesiastes is a book meant to wrestle with the hard questions and the, well, what about fill in the blank to our answers to those hard questions. Moreover, for us to properly orient ourselves to the truthfulness of the teaching of Ecclesiastes, we are required to understand the proper framework and reference point which the preacher is teaching us. And again, the preacher is the narrator of the majority of this book, as is indicated in the first chapter. And I believe that the author of this book is an elderly King Solomon who is reflecting upon his life with his God-given wisdom. But perhaps one of the most helpful ways to orient ourselves to this framework which Solomon is teaching us in Ecclesiastes is to Count how many times the preacher references the sun in this book. 32 times the preacher refers to life under the sun, the rising and setting of the sun, or the light which emanates from the sun. By constantly orienting himself and his teaching under the sun, The preacher is giving us wisdom about life in this world which God has made. Ecclesiastes is looking at human life and meaning in light of the enduring life of the Son and created order. And to put it more concretely, reflect on this. The sun that brightens our skies and warms our faces is the same sun that Adam and Eve gazed upon in the dawning days of creation. 
if you reflect on that a little bit, you begin to understand why Ecclesiastes is teaching us that all of life is vain. Vanity of vanities. If our reference point for the meaning in life is the sun, then we will, real, we will always fail to leave in any lasting impact for our lives are a mere whisper to the age and endurance of, of the sun and the creation around us. And in harmony with this, one commentator says that the preacher's approach makes central his humanity rather than his faith, his creatureliness rather than his redemption. And so, to sum up three main points for Ecclesiastes before we go into this passage, it is a book which, one, gives us the exceptions to the norms of life, which we are taught to in Proverbs. Two, makes us ponder on hard questions rather than giving us easy answers. And three, is brutally honest about our lives under the sun. That is about human life in a created and fallen world. Again, Ecclesiastes gives us the exceptions to the norms of life, makes us ponder on hard questions, and is brutally honest about our lives under the sun. So with these key factors in mind, we are ready to dig into our passage. And by way of illustration, as I reflected upon these verses in preparation... I kept revisiting the, the differences between fantasy and science fiction literature and movies. I personally am of the persuasion that science fiction and fantasy are fundamentally the same genre. One uses the language of science and aliens, and the other uses the language of magic and dragons. But both have to do with creating a more enchanting an adventurous world filled with mystery and extraordinary powers. As much as it may be grating to the Trekkies' ears to hear that Star Trek and Harry Potter are fundamentally in the same category, it is true. One may describe teleportation in terms of magical and incantations and enchanted power, while the other describes teleportation in terms of energy patterns and dematerialization. Both are about a superpower that does not correspond to our actual world and is meant to amaze us. And the point of both science fiction and fantasy is to provide the reader a magical and mysterious world to enter into and escape the supposed mundaneness of our own world. This is, however, where Ecclesiastes corrects us here. Fantasy and science fiction appeal to us not because our world is mundane and boring. Fantasy and science fiction appeal to us because we think that our world is not enchanted or mysterious. We think we have such a sufficient grasp of the world around us so as to look to imaginary worlds to satisfy our cravings for adventure and awe and amazement. A major point of this passage in Ecclesiastes tells us the exact opposite. You, in fact, know very little of God's ways 
in creation. And indeed, this passage forces us to recognize three things. It forces us to recognize our ignorance, cease our idleness, and abstain from being ill at ease. This passage forces us to recognize our ignorance, cease our idleness, and abstain from being ill at ease. But this passage admittedly does teach us these points in a winding and twisting fashion. For in the midst of explaining all that we do not know, which we will get to, the preacher gives us proverbial certainty when he says in verse 3, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. It is the kind of deceptively simple wisdom that reminds us, reminds us of such sayings as, wherever you go, there you are. When clouds are full of rain, rain falls to the earth. When a tree falls down, there it lays. And it's meant to affirm us of the obvious. It's meant to affirm us of the reliability of God's order of creation. But apart from the most obvious, our lives are in fact filled with mystery. As our passage says, we do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not know where and how the wind blows. And we don't know how the child is formed in the womb. Perhaps the most enigmatic verse of this section, however, is verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. We don't really have an English proverb that exactly translates to this one. So there are multiple interpretations for this piece of wisdom. But I'm convinced that it is speaking of the risky business of maritime trade. To cast bread upon the waters is to invest in the trade of goods across bodies of water, which is something that Solomon himself did at the height of his reign. This proverb, however, fits well with the lesson of this section, namely that we do not know the future. Because of the uncertainty of what is to come, risk is an inevitable part of life, and especially in the context of business. Moreover, because of the uncertainty of the future, wisdom implores us to be more charitable and generous. For you do not know what disaster may come on the earth, as verse 2 testifies. Not only do we not know the future, but the way things are likewise is a mystery to us, as verse 5 testifies. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You may notice there is a footnote in the ESV for this verse, and it gives an alternative reading which reads, As you do not know the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of a woman with child. And personally, I'm inclined to agree more with the footnote on the basis of textual evidence and its inner harmony with the themes of this passage, but the overall point remains the same. We are ignorant of the way things truly work. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, 
we do, in fact, know how the wind blows and how conception and pregnancy work. Wind, for example, is the movement of air masses from a high-pressure zone to a low-pressure zone in Earth's atmosphere. In one sense, you are certainly correct. But remember what I said about fantasy and science fiction earlier. Don't let scientific or ma magical vocabulary give you a false sense of absolute certainty of the ways of God's creation. Just because we have many $5 words to describe something does not mean we truly understand how it works. Just because, for example, we know that photo, what photosynthesis is does not mean we fully grasp how plants literally drink sunlight. Indeed, I am sure that when we meet the Lord in glory, we will realize that what we thought we knew was just a drop in the ocean of the complexities and wonders of God's creation. And how, he, how, in fact, he created and how he does sustain everything. And that is, at bottom, the ultimate standard of knowing something if we are Christians. To know something fully and truly is to know how God does it and the purpose for which God has sustained it and pointed it to. As verse 5 concludes with what we read, with the fact that we do not know the ways of God who makes everything. Yes, in one sense, we can explain the wind with language and meteorology and atmospheric pressures, but the Lord himself creates and directs the wind as scripture testifies, but especially in Job. And he creates and directs the wind according to his all-wise purposes. How does God, an omnipotent and glorious spirit of truth and goodness, create and direct the wind? How does God, one in essence and three in person, weave together the tiny bones and muscles of a baby in the womb of her mother? How does God, transcendent above all things and yet imminent in his own creation, hold the sun where it is so he could send just the right amount of waves of light and heat to warm and illuminate the earth? God does all of these things and we may not have answers to these specific questions, but we are not meant to. We are meant to bask in the all-surpassing glory and wisdom of our creator and sustainer as we actually look at the true wonder of his enchanted universe. Christian, you do not need to read Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter to experience a fantastical world because you already live in one. Don't misunderstand me. I think everyone should read good fantasy and science fiction. Just know that the world we live in is just as amazing and mysterious as Middle Earth or Hogwarts. In short, as a creature of the dust living under the sun of God's vast universe, you need to recognize that you are more ignorant than you think. You do not know what the future holds and you know even less about how God's world actually works. But don't fret too much, for a fallen tree remains where it fell 
and, a, and rain falls from clouds when they are heavy with water, as we were reaffirmed from the preacher. And that proverb means that despite that all that we do not know, God's world still turns, and we are still able to know just enough to work in God's world and to enjoy God's world, which now forces us to address how we are often idle and how often we are ill at ease. So even though the preacher emphasizes how little we know about the world in this section, he emphasizes the importance of work, especially in verses 4 and 6, which say, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Verse 4 teaches us not to be crippled by the uncertainty of the future by watching for signs and trying to predict what exactly might happen. And verse 6 teaches us to go the extra mile in our efforts because we do not know what will succeed or what will fail. This wisdom thus teaches us the kind of work ethic that flows directly from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This work ethic of Ecclesiastes being taught here is the mentality of focusing on the immediate tasks of the day and not allowing yourself to be distracted by difficult questions or questions or crippled by perpetual anxieties. We ought not be idle nor ill at ease under the sun and a dutiful commitment to setting our hands to the plow will help us resist our tendencies to be anxious and to be lazy. But now we must ask, is such a life enjoyable? Is a life continually at the grindstone of work under the sun truly a joy? Elsewhere, the preacher of Ecclesiastes answers yes, saying that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And this same point is reiterated throughout the entire book alongside the theme of vanity, which we'll get to eventually. But in our passage, the enjoyment of life and work is expressed in verse 7, which says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Although it is true that actually seeing the sun on a beautiful day is a source of happiness, this verse is saying more than that. In Ecclesiastes, to see the sun is an idiom for simply being alive. Ecclesiastes 7.11 more clearly communicates the meaning of this phrase when it says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Meaning that if a wise person receives an, inher an inheritance, it is only to their advantage if they can actually see the sun, which means they're, they're living. They're not under the ground. 
So in our passage, the preacher tells us clearly that it is, in fact, a good thing to be alive. It is a good thing to be able to open your eyes in the morning and see rays of sunshine float through your bedroom window. It is a good thing to feel the sweat on your brow when you are working outside under the sun. As the preacher says elsewhere, whatever, you, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol meaning the grave. And so as you live now, enjoy work, enjoy knowledge, enjoy wisdom which you receive from the hand of God. But this goodness of being alive under the sweet sunshine does not last forever. As we continue reading to verse 8, which says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Living a long life is worth rejoicing over, but as we all know, sunny days cease. There are dark days of grief, pain, suffering, and death, and there will be many. And for some of you, there have been many. And we are reminded yet again that death comes to all and all is vanity. Vanity is the notorious word and teaching of Ecclesiastes. The word translated as vanity occurs 35 times in the entire Old Testament, 32 of which occur in Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word can also be translated as smoke, breath, vapor, or or mist. It is meant to convey something there, but is unable to be grasped. All is vanity in the sense that meaningfulness in this life and this world is something we can reach out and try to grab, but just like smoke in the palm of our hands, it trickles through our finger cracks and leaves us holding nothing. And we should be particularly well-equipped to understand this metaphor of smoke due to you know a week or two ago with the wildfire smoke coming down from Canada and we noticed that haze that kind of was this film over everything and you could see it from a distance but as you began to approach that hazy smoky area you would pass this invisible threshold And you're suddenly at this point where you cannot see the haze which you once were able to from a distance. You're able to go there and you don't know where it went. And so the eternity that God has placed in our hearts is perpetually unsatisfied in this kind of way. No matter how many years we may live, how much money we have, how much power we possess, or how much fun we experience, as Solomon himself testifies to in the early chapters of this book, we are left grasping smoke and coming up with nothing. And so we come back to the blunt truth of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sweet sun may be good for a time. 
but it is filled with darkness and always ends with death. We can recognize our ignorance, relinquish our idleness, and fight our temptations to be ill at ease. But what does it matter since we are all going to end up in the ground and we will all eventually be forgotten anyway? The wisdom of Solomon may not find an answer to this question, but we find the answer in the wisdom of God which does not consist in a secret book of secret Proverbs, but consists in the person of Jesus Christ. It is He who defeated death and vanity forever and who has given us life beyond the grave. Indeed, it is because of Him that our labor is no longer in vain. Indeed, we may be ignorant of many things in this world and in this life, but those in Christ have a firm foundation to stand on. Jesus himself is the storehouse of all wisdom and all knowledge, and our faith is in him who upholds this enchanted universe by the word of his power. We may not know what the future holds or how the world itself holds together, but we know and are known by the very author of time and space. And therefore, we can take comfort in the lot given to us by his sovereign hand. And we get to labor on joyfully in this world. In Christ, we get to say, vanity of vanities, the sink always fills with dishes. They just keep on coming. I get to wash these dishes for my Lord and King. Vanity of vanities, the grass keeps on growing. It's as if I didn't even mow last week. I'm going to mow the grass for the glory of God. Vanity of vanities, my child is sick yet again, and I am up to the hours of the night, tending to her, I will do so as Christ tends to me. Be reminded that just as universal is of the claim of Solomon that all is vanity, so is just as universal as the claim of Paul that whether you eat or drink, do all things for the glory of God. Christian, strive for excellence in what you put your mind and hands to. Glorify God by your blood, sweat, and tears, not for the sake of work itself, but for the sake of glorifying the one who shed his blood, sweat, and tears for you. In Christ, we can look up at the sun and feel its sweetness, all the while knowing that what Ecclesiastes teaches is still true. You will die and you will eventually be forgotten by your future generations. But you will live again and you will know God as he has always known you. In Christ we can work under the sun with joy knowing that he is the one who hangs it in the sky as he controls all things for his good purposes. And yet there may be some of you who look at the sun and are 
numb to its sweetness. The darkness of grief and heartbreak constantly eclipses the sun and darkens your world, even when you are quite aware that Christ holds all things together. You find yourself thinking, I don't really care all that much about sunshine, especially when my mother is dying. Or, I was just diagnosed with cancer and a sunny day doesn't change that fact. Or, thousands of days I have seen the sun since my spouse left me, but the pain and bitterness remains. Christian, I commend to you still, no matter what kind of pain or grief or suffering you may be going through, you look up at the sun and you take joy. Not because it warms your face or illuminates everything around you so you can see, nor even because you might know that it is God who holds that sun in its place. Christian, you look up at the sun and take joy because that sun is temporary. That sun may have been before your life and will continue to blaze long after you are dead and gone, but that sun is just as much of a breath as you, you are, albeit a slightly deeper sigh. That sun will come to an end and its light will dim, only to be replaced by an even greater light, an even greater warmth, an even greater sweetness, an even greater sun, S-O-N. Christian, when you look up at the sun in the sky now, you take joy in knowing that the sun and the stars and all the heavens will soon be swept away like a thousand lighthouse beacons shining their light on that dim green light that comes from the face of your wristwatch. The sun in the sky now will soon be swallowed by the dazzling gleam and transcendent brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ when he finally comes again. As John accounts in Revelation, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And so... Christian, if the sun's current kiss is not sweet, lift your drooping head and strengthen your weak knees and know that you are awaiting a kiss from the Son of God as you look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of this world and the beginning of the next. And as you wait for this glorious marriage celebration, recognize and embrace your ignorance of God's enchanted world and be awestruck by the wonders of God's ways. Cease your idleness and abstain from being ill at ease. Work hard at what you do for the glory of the one who gave his life for you and was risen on your behalf. Accept the inevitability of death and the vanity of life under the sun as Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes, but also rejoice in the sweetness of 
of life in Christ, who not only carries the earth around the sun, but who will soon replace the sun with his own infinite and eternal glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching, the strange teaching of Ecclesiastes. But we thank you that it is inspired and it is true and it does point us to your Son. Would you help us now to walk away from here fixed upon you and as we look up to the Son, we take joy in knowing that you are good, you are sovereign, and you are coming again. Help us to work hard at what we do under the sun, as we abide in you and you abide in us. In your precious name we pray, amen.